Well, as we come to the word of the Lord tonight, we are in the eighth psalm. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Psalm number eight, just uh, an incredible place for us to fix our hearts and minds this evening. You know, as we think of this eighth psalm, what, what kind of came to my mind in the, the escalating components of praise which we have sung about, which we have read about in our scripture reading, is what we've just gone through here in our country with the 4th of July celebration. Now, I am a guy that likes fireworks, okay? When I grew up, we had you know, a little fountain or something around the house, and that was about it. And then I met this cute hot girl whose dad used to take her to the Indian Reservation in Idaho. And they had fireworks like I had never seen before. And so I kind of found that I, I had an affinity for those fireworks and enjoyed them quite a lot. Well, as time has gone on, we have gone to various fireworks shows across the country, and we're blessed this past Fourth uh, of July to have a fireworks show right over in our neighborhood at, at Heron Lakes, and, and it was very nice. It was a very nice show. And then we decided, well, you know, we certainly have to go to the, the downtown show to see the Mobile fireworks. And, and we did, and we, you know, found a very nice little perch to watch them from. And it was absolutely stunning. I mean, they just were that much more grand. And I'm sure if you went on and you went to, I don't know, New York or somewhere else, there would be even bigger fireworks that we might see. And there is just this escalating brilliance that goes on and can continue almost ad infinitum in that realm of a fireworks display. Well, as we consider that ever-increasing magnitude, that's exactly what we see in Psalm 8. And this is where our title comes from, the display of maximum majesty. That's what I titled our message for tonight, the display of maximum majesty majesty. One theologian in speaking of the psalm says Psalm 8 is meant to exemplify the life of the believer in praising God. So as we think of this psalm tonight, as we prepare to look at it, it really is to be emblematic of our lives. It is a reflection of the Westminster Confession of Faith which states in its overarching sentiment that the chief end of man is to glorify God. All that we do is to bring honor and glory to God. The psalm really is like a doxology or a song of praise. Now, you're all familiar with the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I'd have Peter sing that, but I'll spare you all of that uh, opportunity. But it is, it is that song of praise. This is what we're seeing tonight, this doxology. It's interesting that there are five different sections of the book of Psalms. We call them each separate books within the book of Psalms. And all of them end with a doxology, with a, a praise to God. In fact, there are several texts that we find that end with wonderful doxologies. One of them in the book of Luke. And let me just read for you Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. 
where it says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is a doxology because it tells us of the Lord's continual increase in favor and glory. We see a, a, a wonderful doxology that occurs at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 16 where it says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And these doxologies, these benedictions that we often like to consider them are throughout the scripture. Even that which we read this morning. We often think that they occur only at the end of a book. But as we saw this morning, there we were in chapter 11 of Romans. And here, all of a sudden, there's this glorious doxology that pops up at the end of the 11th chapter. But it, the, the issue that I believe we see why there are so many of these doxologies, so many benedictions, is because it is so easy for us to lose sight of praising God. One commentator notes, the problem is what is given in great abundance, that is our salvation, is often treated with indifference and apathy. We don't consider all that we've received in Christ's gift to us. We don't stop and reflect on all that the Lord has done. Well, in Psalm 8, we hear David praising and communing with God, and we get to come and listen. We can hear this psalm of adoration to God. And the psalm reveals the majesty in, of the majesty of God in its essence. And that's why I've titled it, The Display of Maximum Majesty. Our first point, first of three for the evening tonight, in verse one, is the majesty in creation. The majesty in creation is our first point. It begins our text off, and it starts, O Lord, our Lord. The literal translation of the Hebrew, we would say, is, O Yahweh, our Adonai. The importance of the names of God cannot be overstated here. He is focusing us on two very unique attributes of the names of God. We know that there are many names of God. I have books on my shelves that talk about the names of God because there are so many. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. The first word, Lord. Notice the difference in your Bibles there where it's all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's speaking about the covenant-keeping God. The next word, our Lord, capital L, and then small o-r-d, is that word Adonai, and it means master or ruler. It's interesting that that first name, the name Yahweh, was the name that the Jewish people would not allow to be pronounced. In fact, so that that name was never pronounced, they took the vowel pointings from the word Adonai, and they combined it with Yahweh. And the resulting word, which is not found in our Bibles, but is very common to us, is the word Jehovah. And they came up with that word so that Yahweh would never be spoken. Of course, that is a misnomer and, and a legalistic approach to what should be considered. Another unique facet is the name Yahweh is found throughout the land of Israel in the archaeology. 
and in the different ruins and finds, but it is never found outside of the land of Palestine. It's only in Israel that we see this name brought forward. The the Jews understand this combination and they understand the importance of it and they understand the sanctity of it. The psalmist here proclaims the majesty of God's name that it is over every name. We're very familiar with some aspects of that in the New Testament that we think of, O Lord, our Lord. One of those places that we come to is in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21 particularly where it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There are no names that are greater than the name of Yahweh. There are no names that are greater than the name of our God. It is by far that name which is most important. We see that also uh, a, a book later in the book of Philippians where we see a reference to this in Philippians 2 and verse 9. A very familiar verse to us where it says in Philippians 2 and 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we think of that verse and it's very popular and we hear it often. And it becomes almost a piece of our Christian ease. And we don't consider what it really means. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means, yes, all the believers, and as we leave this earth and enter into Christ's very presence, we will rejoice and proclaim that Jesus Christ is God. But all of those who are unbelievers will also bow the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every unbeliever, when he dies, will also appear before Christ to bow the knee and to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Be cast into the eternal abyss where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not stop. It's a daunting consideration to recognize the power of the name of God. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. An incredible consideration for us. The Lord is displaying his splendor in all the earth, in all of his creation. The terms heaven and earth here do refer to all the created realm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When he speaks about the heavens and the earth, that's all that there is of which we are aware. Those are all of the creative elements from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all there was. That's all there is. And it is that name which is most majestic in everything which is known by mankind. 
incredible for us to recognize this proclamation. We see similar references in Psalm 148 and verse 13. Psalm 148 and verse 13 talks about as well this majestic greatness where it says, but as for us, Psalm 148, 13, Psalm 148 and 13 says, he will bless those who fear the Lord, the small, that's the wrong verse, excuse me, not 118, 148, thank you for your patience. Psalm 148 and verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. All of the heavens and the earth proclaim the glory of God. So also do we see in Psalm 113, a similar proclamation, Psalm 113 and verse four, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. The the glory of God is on display in all the heavens and all the earth. This is what Psalm 19 says, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament declares his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no voice, nor is there language where their voice is not heard. God's glory, God's majesty is continually echoing through the created realm. It's echoing through the stars. It's echoing through the path of the sun. And Psalm 19 goes on to talk about the sun coming out of its chambers as a bridegroom returning out of his tent. And its circuit is from one end to the other. And there is no stopping it and nothing is hidden from its heat. Not its light, but it's heat, so that it is not sight that requires us to understand the power of the sun and God's created glory and majesty in the sun, for all feel the heat. Now we can particularly relate to the heat when we get a little rain and a warm mobile afternoon and that sun comes out, and for a minute you're wondering if you're going to be able to really breathe, because we know what heat is all about. Well, it is that glorious proclamation that reminds us of God. It is the same glory that we see revealed to us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. A very familiar text that speaks to us about God's revealed glory in all of creation. And it says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has placed the understanding of himself inside every person. And creation continues to reveal who God is. And it is done so that man is without excuse. So that all know who he is. All creation proclaims God's glory. The word majestic here means to be swollen. It means to overflow. It's like a river at flood stage that cannot be controlled. It is running everywhere. This is the majesty of God. It is going to all places and nothing can contain it. What a 
what, when great strength or power are exercised, it is often called majestic or glorious. The radical power that was exercised during the creation of the heavens and the earth, all of it reflects the majesty and glory of God. Think about all that we see, how beautiful, how intricate it is in all of the biosphere around us. And then to recognize that it came into being in maturity as we see it, trees bearing fruit in their seed by the spoken word of God. The spoken word of God had that much majesty and that much power. That is indeed a most incredible and majestic proclamation. And this is majesty in creation. Our second point begins in verse 2. And it is the majesty of contrasts. The majesty of contrasts. The Hebrew term here at the beginning of verse 2a starts to give us an idea of this contrast. Look at the first part of verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Now, how does that happen? How is it that babies which are barely able to talk are those which establish strength? The Hebrew terms here refer to babies and children that are under three years old. How is it that they are able to proclaim strength? Interesting as well that that word strength can actually be translated as bulwark or foundation. How can babies support a foundation for the majesty of God? Let's think about that for a minute. Didn't God use a baby in a basket in reeds to overthrow the most powerful nation in the world in Moses? A baby supporting the majesty of the foundation of the God of the universe. God sent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords through a virgin birth into a manger that he might dispatch the majesty of God in a hostile world. Many texts in scripture reference this element of children and babies proclaiming this majesty and glory of God, proclaiming this strength. One such text is Matthew 21 and verse 15. Matthew 21 and verse 15 and 16 read, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear these children? Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. So here we see children having such a powerful role in strength, in the strength of praising God. A few chapters back in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, the Lord speaking regarding the rank of kingdom said to his disciples, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The importance of children are those who Christ tells us all people must be like. All must have that childlike heart and faith in order to enter the kingdom of God. And not just that, but anyone who causes a child, who causes one with that nuanced faith, that pure faith of God to stumble, he will receive the maximum wrath upon God. What an, a daunting consideration for us. Another wonderful text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. At the beginning of Paul's epistle to the church in Corinth, we see him discuss this same component in slightly different words where he says in 1 Corinthians 1 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That, that contrast of weak and strong will play itself out in just a few minutes in our text. But God is choosing these things that are not what we would expect to show the elements of his strength. Matthew, or excuse me, Psalm 29 and verse 1 also speaks about this same element where it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. All of this is his strength which is to be revealed. So also in Psalm 118 and verse 14, where we read in Psalm 118 and 14, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. As we think about majesty, as we think about praising God, we recognize the fact that God is to be our song. He is to be our strength because he is our salvation. All that we are and all that we have, the most important things that we possess are our salvation, which comes to us from God. What an incredible picture. Majesty displayed through contrast. And this is the contrast of might. First, in the lack of might through a child. Next, in verse 2b, two, two through an excess of might. Look at the second half of verse 2 where it says, Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. We talked this morning about the enemies of God. We spoke about God's wrath against them against Sodom and the power that he exercised in bringing fire and brimstone upon them. In the Red Sea, the power that he exercised in allowing his nation to go across on dry land and then collapse the walls of the sea on the Egyptian army. We talked about the power of God against his enemies with the sons of Korah as the earth opened and swallowed them up. 
the power of God against his enemies in Joshua. Go and read Joshua. Some of those battle sequences in the first 12 chapters of Joshua. Joshua is broken up into two sections, 24 chapters long. First 12 chapters are the conquests. And the second 12 chapters are the dividing of the land. And read those first 12 chapters. There is one scene where Joshua has been faithful. He has obeyed God after all of the problems at Ai. And he has obeyed God and God says, This time, Joshua, I want you to stand still. And I want you to hear and to see the power of of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. And when you hear the balsam trees rustling, then you will know that my victory is at hand. And Joshua and his army literally stand there as they hear the trees overhead rustling and the army, the angels of the Lord start destroying the oncoming army and they go out and gather the spoils. Amazing to consider God's power against his enemies. We see that the same theme conveyed for us a bit further on in the Psalms in Psalm 44 in verse 16, where it says, Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger, God will bring his judgment upon all people. The first Majesty through contrast is the contrast of might. The contrast of the weak versus the contrast of the excessively strong. The second contrast is in verses 3 to 8, and it is the contrast of men. Look at verses 3 to 4 with me. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Man is shown in his weakness and insignificance. When I consider your heavens. Psalm 89 and verse 11 carries us to understand this same concept of his heavens. Where it says in Psalm 89, 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. When I consider your heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, if we had time, we would go back and we would look at Job chapters 38 to 41. That's another place to go and to read and to understand the power and the majesty of God. Job has gone on with his three friends and then Elihu comes in and rebukes all four of them, speaking for God. And then God steps in in chapter 38 and he speaks for himself. And he absolutely lays the wood to the back of Job, taking him out to the shed. And shows him his power, asks him where he was when the foundations of the earth were set. Asks him if he knows when the fawn will, or when the doe will bring forth her young and will calve. All of these beautiful facets, if he knows where the hail is stored, where the rain is stored, God's majesty so beautifully proclaimed through the heavens the work of his fingers. And consider the moon and the stars. Psalm 136 talks about this glory of the moon and the stars in 
Psalm 136 and verse 9. And it says in, in that text, Psalm 136, 9, The moon and the stars to rule the night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The, the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the loyal love of God in Psalm 136 is another beautiful place for you to focus on God's glory and all that he reveals in that beautiful text. And the question becomes, what is man? In particular, what is man alongside of these? When we consider these elements, what is it that we could possibly lay together for man? Job 7, 17 asks that very same question where Job has received the beginnings of the affliction. And in Job 7, 17, it says, What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? What indeed is man? What is man that you take thought of him? Or what is the son of man that you care for him? Excuse me. <clears throat> what is the man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? The implication of all of these is that there is no comparison of, of man alongside of all that God has done. God is the one that is all-powerful, and these other elements are so far above and beyond anything that man could ever do. So we see the weakness of man to begin with, and God's majesty in compared to them. You know, we see this same picture, and we're so blessed to live in the age of the, the, the space age, as it's often called, and we see the pictures from out in space, outside of our atmosphere, off the moon, down towards the earth. And you see the continents and you see the seas. And you start trying to pick out, well, where in that mass is the United States? And, and where in that mass is Alabama? And, and where is Mobile? And where am I in that? And we become such an infinitesimal speck. And this is the picture that's being portrayed for us. What is man? alongside of all of this. How glorious is God? How majestic is all that he has revealed? And yet he's not going to leave us, recognizing this smallness? Not at all. No, he takes us from the contrast of men in their weakness to the contrast of men in their strength, in verses 5 to 8, where it says, yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Despite man's weakness in the first contrast. God has put him in charge made him a little lower than God. This reflects us back, beloved, all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where we read in the creation account in Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over cattle, and over, 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is an absolutely incredible consideration for us to recognize that God puts us in charge of all. Now, when we see creation and we recognize the creation account and we see that everything is building up to the climax of the creation of man, we're not as concerned that God has placed us in charge of all of this. But then we know what happens in Genesis 3. And God knew what was going to happen in Genesis 3. And we begin to wonder, did you really want to put us in charge of all of this? Of course he did. Because he is the one that is superintending everything. He is sovereign over every element of all creation and over the continuation of all creation. Over every molecule, there is nothing that is not designed to bring praise to God. And so us, who have been made lower than God, crowned with glory and majesty, have been made to rule over the works of his hands and to put all things under his feet incredible for us to understand this, to crown him with glory and majesty. Psalm 103 and verse 4 talks about this glory and majesty where we see another beautiful picture of our psalmist rejoicing in this where it says Psalm 103, 4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. What a joy we have in knowing this truth. God is the one who is renewing. God is the one who has brought us this glory and who has allowed us to rule. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 7 also speaks of this same element. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven seven. For a man not ought to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now this text has led many people far askew on different considerations of what it's speaking about. But if we stick just with the context of the, this verse, we see in it that man is the image and glory of God. But what is the glory of man? For that's what's being spoken about here in our text. You crown him with glory and majesty. It is the woman. Man, look at the woman that God has given you. Look at the glory that she reflects. Look at that which, in which she exalts and lifts us up. Continues to move us forward. Continues to show herself wise in our midst. These are the beauties of God's creation, of his orchestration. And for that, we should praise him from the heights all day long, rejoicing in these good gifts which he has provided to us. He rules over the works of your hands. Again, we're taken back to Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 1.28, where God says, let them be fruitful and multiply and subdue. So also in Genesis 9, after the flood, the same command being issued to Noah, as we saw when we talked about the covenants. You put all things under his feet. Now here, here we make a slight transition to what is clearly a messianic reference. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27 confirms this messianic passage where we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is, of course, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We see another parallel reference to this putting things under his feet in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. And there in Ephesians 1, 22, we, we read Paul as he writes to us, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Again, a reference to Christ. Psalm 110.1 as another reference that we are very familiar. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all things under your feet. Uh, a very parallel reference with that reference to Yahweh and Adonai. Verses 7 and 8 show that which is to man is to rule over, over all of the created elements. Beloved, are these not all reasons for us to praise the Lord? Do they, do they not show the display of maximum majesty? Who but God could in his majesty do such things? Who is it that could show these contrasts of the weak of children? who show his strength, show the power of enemies which he crushes under his feet, to show the weakness of man alongside of all of creation, and yet the strength that he has given to man in allowing him to rule over all things. It is with that that we move to our final point in verse 9, the majesty in conclusion. The majesty in conclusion. And we end where we began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We return again to that beginning and we see that when men come before God in a case like this, when we come as David was praising God, there is a response that often happens in the scripture. And it is that men fall on their faces in recognition of who God is. We see it in Joshua 5.14 where the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, comes to Joshua and Joshua falls on his face. We see it in Ezekiel 1.28 where God appears to Ezekiel and Ezekiel falls upon his face. We see it in Matthew 17.6 where Peter and James and John are at the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus his garments whiter than any launderer could make them, and his visage glowing, and they fall upon their face. In Acts 9-4, on the road to Damascus, as the Lord came to Paul, he fell upon his face. And in Revelation 4-11, all of the 24 elders and the angels cast their crowns down and fall upon their faces to worship the Lord Jesus. And beloved, so also should be our response. But not just at reading and understanding this text, but at all times in our lives. This ought to be a text that moves us to continue to focus on the majesty of God. 
to be overwhelmed at who he is and what he has done for us. To recognize the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he has brought light to dark eyes. That he has opened deaf ears. That he has taken hearts of stone like yours and mine and removed them to give us hearts of flesh. But there are those that do not know this truth. There are those that are not fully convinced of Jesus Christ's lordship and are not living in obedience to his word. And it is to those whom we must continue to speak. It is to those whom we must continue to cry out about the majesty of God and say, why? Why would you not come? Why would you not worship? Why would you not rejoice in the glories of this Savior? Because he desires to reach out to all men and he will reach all men. But it will either be a joining which will result in eternity in heaven and bliss or it will be a joining which will result in their bowing and immediate abandonment. What a joy it is that we can proclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May we do that to all the strength and power we have so that our own hearts may be encouraged and so that all around us may also know this truth.